I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world, from personal practice to our politics and culture, in times of peace and conflict. In today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at Just War Theory, a framework in Western political philosophy that traces back to moral codes of war articulated by St. Augustine in the 5th century. Over time, it has been debated, applied, and revised most recognizable in secular laws and international treaties, including the Geneva Conventions. Terms like collateral damage, proportionality to the treatment of prisoners flow from this moral and ethical framework for conflict. When the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, Valerie Morkavages was a graduate student at the University of Chicago studying philosophy, religion, and international studies. I was at kind of an an interesting stage. At the time, I was in a class about just war with uh, Jean Bethke Elstein. And the fascinating thing in the buildup in the U.S. to the war in 2003 was that uh, I was hearing from Professor Elstein a lot of conversation about humanitarian intervention and how the wrongs that Saddam Hussein had committed in the past, uh, genocide against the Kurds and oppression of the Shia, warranted a U.S. response, a military response. Beth K. Elstein was one of the nation's most prominent and provocative thinkers on religion, feminism, political philosophy, and ethics. Her ideas shaped and influenced policymakers and elected leaders like President George W. Bush. Here she is in 2006 on the PBS program Religion and Ethics News Weekly. For me, the fact that WMD haven't been found is not a trump card that obliterates all the other moral and ethical considerations that I think we need to keep in the mix as we talk about this, what we loosely call humanitarian intervention. In the classic just war teaching, it's protecting the innocent from certain harm. Um, The data on what was going on in Iraq was horrid and overwhelming. If what you wind up with is some kind of civil war that goes on without end, then you can look back and say this was likely a mistake. And if that happens, it will have been a mistaken judgment on uh, my part and a lot of other people's. When the Iraq war began, I was also serving as a teaching assistant for John Mearsheimer in courses on uh, grand strategy in international relations. And I was hearing from Professor Mearsheimer that this would be a waste of American blood and, and treasure, that it was an unnecessary war. The idea that you could take the U.S. Army and send it into Iraq and that it is going to be able to do nation building or state building in a sophisticated way, it's not going to happen, I can guarantee you. You want to send him up against Saddam's army in the middle of the desert in 1991, right? You want to do that? That's Bambi versus Godzilla, right? That's what the U.S. Army or the U.S. Marines are good at doing. But you start talking about taking the American military, putting it in a place like Vietnam, 
putting it in a place like Afghanistan and letting it do social engineering, not going to work. And I thought that was very surprising uh, that the scholar who is an expert in just war was rather in favor of the intervention in 2003 and the realist scholar uh, was was not. And that was a puzzle that I really wanted to get to know more about. And I've been working on questions of the ethics of warfare ever since. Instead of picking apart these two sides, more cabbages sees a third way. She argues just war theory and realists have more in common than they may think. It is a central argument in her 2017 book, Realist Ethics, published by Cambridge University Press. More Cabbages rejects the binary view of the camps. In her book, she argues the oversimplification is dangerous and a fundamental misreading of history. Her research traces the roots of just war theory in not only Christianity, but Judaism, Islam, and Hinduism. Her thesis is that just war thinkers must be more realist today because history shows that is the tradition. You write that just war thinking is a tradition that considers whether it is ever ethically sound to use war to solve a political problem. And if so, what would be the right ways to go about fighting that war? Mm -hmm. At the time that you were bringing these two streams of political philosophy together, what was unfolding on the ground in Iraq? Well, for people who study the just war traditions, order is about the minimal conditions of domestic stability that you need in order to be able to try to construct a good life for yourself as an individual. So order is not necessarily just, uh, it needs to be minimally just in order for it to be order, or you, uh, or you don't have order at all, but it doesn't have to be perfect in order to be a, a value, to be a good. And one of the things that happened fairly quickly in Iraq after 2003 was that the U.S. and its allies were unable to restore or rebuild a, a new order. So with the breakdown of Saddam Hussein's order, there was a power vacuum. It wasn't clear who should govern and how. The norms or the rules of the road for what that new governance would look like weren't established or broadly accepted. And uh, that led to mass violence between groups in, in society. And we should have thought about that, the value of order Thinking about the value of order, the power dynamics between states and federations are the type of things realists would highlight before engaging. Fast forward to this year, 2022, with fresh lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan. Many Americans are asking, why would the United States engage in Ukraine? It's a question Professor Markavich's former mentor is also asking. Mearsheimer argues that Russia's response is not imperialism, but rather an effort to retain its sphere of influence and power in the region. For Mearsheimer, the morality or moral dimensions are less in focus. Here he is in September of 2015, speaking at the University of Chicago. We're encouraging the Ukrainians to think that they will ultimately become part of the West because we will ultimately defeat Putin and we will ultimately get our way. Time is on our side. And the Ukrainians are almost completely unwilling to compromise 
with the Russians and instead want to pursue a hardline policy. If they do that, the end result is that their country is going to be wrecked. And what we're doing is, in effect, encouraging that outcome. I think it would make much more sense for us to work to create a neutral Ukraine. It would be in our interest to bury this crisis as quickly as possible. It certainly would be in Russia's interest to do so. And most importantly, it would be in Ukraine's interest to put an end to the crisis. For more cabbages, the moral emotions can become powerful drivers of public will, which in turn drive political will and state action. I've been having lots of conversations about that with people, um, highlighting perhaps the confusing responses from the American public to some aggression, but not to other. Someone pointed out to me that Ethiopia, for example, has also 2 million displaced uh, Ethiopians because of the conflict that has erupted there again in the last year. The, the level of response and the desire and the call for U.S. intervention and engagement, it's not even on the same plane. I think that's really an important uh, issue to think about. So one way to think about why our reactions are, are different is to think about the geostrategical implications. But there's another way, which is to think about uh, our moral emotions um, and, and to think a little bit more critically about what triggers our moral emotions and why. So the idea of moral emotions can be traced back to Augustine in the 4th century or to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Aquinas argued that our emotional responses to some things, the feeling of anger that seeing injustice brings about or disgust that injustice sometimes makes us feel, are powerful signals to us of what is good in the world and what is evil in the world. Um, Adam Smith, uh, in the moral sentiments in the 18th century, brought up this very similar idea about how uh, our emotions are guideposts that help us see what is just and what is unjust. But I think uh, if we bring in a little bit of, of social science or even psychology, we know that our emotional response to things is colored not only by our inner moral compass, but also by positionality about who we are and the affinities we feel towards other people on the basis of, of shared religion or language or culture, ethnicity, even race. So something I, I think is useful to reflect upon is why we have such an outpouring of empathy now. I think it's good and I think we should use that empathy to fight for justice in Ukraine. But I think it's worth reflecting on how we might also find this empathy to think about things like the war in Tigray uh, in Ethiopia, uh, like uh, the, the ongoing war in Yemen um, and, and the continuing conflict in Syria. And, and to think about why our moral emotions as a society haven't been worked up about those conflicts quite as much. Our sense of affection, affiliation, our sense of connection, those, those terms that you were using, is there a way to transcend that and have it 
apply to others who we may not feel that level of emotional proximity to? So I think there's two ways of thinking about an answer to that question. One is a response that appeals to our rationality, which is to say that we can think in in the case of other conflicts about responsibility in terms of our degree of complicity in the situations that are causing the violence on the ground. To think, for example, about weapon sales to uh, Saudi Arabia in terms of the conflict in Yemen, or to think about uh, the kinds of pressures the U.S. might be able to exert on, on Ethiopia as a recipient of U.S. aid and military uh, assistance. So I think there's, there's one way of thinking about it, which is to say, you know, responsibility is partly a, a simple matter of rationality that, you know, we, we are responsible for something because we we are participating in it even from a distance, then we should do something about it from an ethical point of view. I think a second way is, uh, and this is something I've, I'm just sort of struggling with now as I, as I watch the American response to Ukraine, is to think about how we might teach ourselves to really see the humanity in others and to think about the emotions we feel when we look at cities in Ukraine, which maybe look more like cities that Americans live in or that they've been to traveling in Europe, um, and to think about how we might find that emotion in ourselves, right? Now that we know that we have it, <laughs> to think about, you know, where else that emotion might be directed. So it's sort of a big philosophical question, but I, I think it's a little bit like um, the experience of other powerful emotions, that once you know that that, that exists, that you can feel um, passionately about something, that then it's worthwhile to, to really sit back and think about those other circumstances. And I think it's a moment for potential growth for many Americans to think about, about these other conflicts and our humane response, also for Europeans. As, as well. Um, I'm thinking especially about this really creative and heartwarmingly humanitarian response that Poland is having to the massive numbers of Ukrainian refugees who are crossing the border. And so far, uh, Poland has been able to find housing for all of those individuals in private homes or in hotels. Um, so, you know, no refugee camps, no tents, no, no temporary housing so far. Um, they may, you know, the numbers may increase to the point where they'll need to do that in the future. But that makes one think about, you know, how might we respond in similar ways to to other conflicts um, or to support the next door state, right? In, in Turkey's case, uh, Turkey has also been generous to Syrian refugees. How can we as a world community support Turkey in, in that um, in the way that we are hopefully going to support Poland in these in these efforts? So I think there's both rational and emotional ways uh, that, that we can think about this. And I do hope that we learn from, from this experience and what we're able to do when we care to think about how we might extend that care to, to others. Working on the just war tradition, something that people often say to me is, well, 
Other states or other groups don't follow these ethical rules. So why should I? And one of the responses that the tradition gives us is that it's, it's not really about what others do or don't do. It's about us and the kind of individuals we want to be and the kind of society we want to have. So we can reimagine ourselves as ethical actors, I think. Mm. And this might be a moment that, that sparks some thinking about that. This week, my guest is Valerie Moore-Cavages, an assistant professor of political science at Colgate University and the author of Realist Ethics. When we come back, she walks through the evolution of just war theory and its core pillars. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and we'll be back after this short break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Breen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, my guest is Dr. Valerie Morkavichs. She's the author of Realist Ethics, and she spends a lot of time thinking about the ethics of warfare. On March 8th, she published an article in The Conversation in which she raised a question, is war ever justified? Morkavichs has spent her academic life exploring this question at the intersection of politics, ethics, international relations, and theology. These debates are not academic today. People across the world are rallying and outraged, and many are pressuring their leaders to act, to do more, and often invoking morality and values. This week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky directly appealed to the United States Congress and President Biden and the American people to do more when leaders ask their constituents to support warfare or defend against aggression. Morality and values language often becomes the frame. (laughs) 
Morkavich offers some context and history on how we arrived at those questions and conditions to help us answer the question, is it ethical to go to war? I want to shift for a moment to just war theory. We're referencing a lot Mm -hmm. in this conversation. What is just war thinking? So that's a great question. Um, The just war tradition um, is, well, in the Christian tradition, it emerged out of a struggle in the fourth century that we can really see in the writings of, of Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop in North Africa. The Christian religion had become the sort of state religion of the Roman Empire. And so suddenly, Christianity moved from being a faith that was persecuted by the states at worst or at best ignored to the sort of religion that the state was invoking. At the same time, this meant that Christians as individuals had to radically rethink how they approached the world. Because early Christianity was pacifist and discouraged Christians from participating in the military and in government activities. What does it mean to be a Christian in government service? And Augustine really struggles with with that, and particularly with questions about the use of force. So over time, uh, the tradition in Christianity uh, develops a a very um, detailed set of principles to think about when it might be justifiable to go to war. So in your question, you asked, you know, is war ever just? And I think that most just war thinkers might push back on that and say, well, war itself, we can't say that it's just because that implies that everything that's happening within it is is right. And warfare, even when war is used for good reasons, justifiable reasons, there are still harms that happen to innocent people that can't be described as just. Um, But it could be justifiable, the tradition argues. And in thinking about when to go to war, the Christian tradition ends up by the the 13th century or so having a, a set of six principles to think about. So whether the war has been initiated by a legitimate authority and so in this instance, we're talking about the Russian military, not a right. separatist group or a group that is extrajudicial right. or outside the state. You're not talking about stand-up militias or extrajudicial forces. So the historical tradition has been what we might say in today's political science terms, pretty statist, with some asterisks and footnotes. So there are conversations about, you know, what is a tyrant? Do tyrants have the right to use force? Can people resist uh, a tyrant with force? There are different answers from different uh, historical just war thinkers about that question. But even the ones who are willing to tolerate a rebellion against a tyrant caution that the rebellion would only be justified if the harms that would ensue from rebelling would not be worse than the harms that you bear from living under a tyrant. They are definitely wanting to keep the use of armed force out of the hands of private actors. Uh, It's a major concern. And that makes sense if you think about the era in which a great deal of just war thinking was happening, right? It's uh, an era of feudal systems, of feudal warfare, when lots of individuals within a given polity 
are armed and have the ability to call other armed people to their assistance. So to reduce the amount of violence in the system, the, the tradition is trying to limit the right to use force to the person at the very top of that feudal hierarchy uh, as a way of trying to maintain domestic stability as well as international order. Secondly, the just war traditions think about whether or not you have a just cause for engaging in warfare. Historically, this is understood in in two ways. So as self-defense, and secondly, in terms of righting wrongs. What does that mean, righting wrongs? Yeah. So for someone like Thomas Aquinas, uh, who's writing in the 13th century, Writing wrongs itself has two kinds of meanings. So one is a prince might look at another principality and see that the leader there is a tyrant uh, who oppresses his, his people and who rules unjustly. And the, the more just prince could engage in what we would today call a humanitarian intervention to right that wrong, to oust that tyrant that could potentially be a legitimate use of of force. The second way in which early just war thinkers thought about uh, righting wrongs is one which is more complicated to think about today, which is suppose that the neighboring state refuses to use its legal system to hold its citizens accountable for crimes they commit against people in your state. So threats against individual citizens or members of your own community that are coming from actors outside your community whose own leaders are failing to hold them accountable for those threats or that bad behavior is another kind of righting wrong. This idea of righting wrongs Uh, is slippery, so authority and cause. But so far, authority limits how many wars we might be participating in. Cause seems to open up a Pandora's box. The next principle that we usually talk about is something called right intent, which is the idea that whatever our stated cause is should really be the reason that we are choosing to engage in force. Um, In the case of Ukraine, for example, if the Kremlin's argument is we need to engage in force in Ukraine in order to protect Russian language speakers, then thinking about right intent, we should expect that the way in which they fight should indicate that that's truly their intent. Very restricted use of force in areas where there are large numbers of Russian speakers, um, in order to protect them, uh, humanitarian actions in order to be sure that Russian speakers are are safe from the violence that's being used in their name. Those would all be indications that the category of right intent is being met. From a just war point of view, right, the difficulty with right intent is this is really a principle that historically was meant to be something that the leader, him or herself, would consider, you know, in their own heart, 
uh, in their own soul and thinking about, you know, what am I doing and why? So am I motivated by greed or lust for power or desire for honor or glory? Those are all unacceptable motivations within the tradition. So I need to be sure that my stated reasons, my good just causes are really the reasons. For us in the modern world, we know that we can't really get at what is really in somebody's mind. So we look at their actions and the degree to which uh, the way in which they're fighting holds up or doesn't hold up what they claimed to have been their original motivation. The next principle that the tradition asks us to think about is proportionality. So with the sense that all war causes harm and destruction, then we have to ask whether the pursuit of our just cause through the use of force is proportionate to the amount of harms that we're going to cause while doing it. So if we're correcting a minor injustice, then a war which is going to cause a lot of destruction would not meet the category of proportionality. Mm -hmm. When you start looking at the destruction of infrastructure, the destruction and loss of life, the destruction of access to basic goods like water, clean water, electricity, um, roads to be able to transport food and medicine. Proportionality isn't just life. It's also, right? It's more than that. Right. It's more than just life. And it's also, you know, to think back to our conversation about 2003, it's not just in the moment that we're fighting either. So it's not just the the harms to people and property and to society that are happening now, but the after effects Mm -hmm. that will linger, including disruptions to society that might make uh, civil order difficult to maintain later. In modern terms now, we are very concerned about the way in which war fighting is deeply traumatizing to the soldiers who participate in war as well. So it's not just physical injuries or uh, psychological harm like PTSD, but also something called moral injury. What is moral moral injury? Moral injury occurs when an individual experiences or witnesses something that radically disrupts their sense of how the world should be. So we have accounts of moral injury coming from Iraq or Afghanistan, where individuals witnessed other members of their unit participating in war crimes uh, that completely shocked their sense of who they are as moral individuals in the world, as American soldiers, as as human beings. Um, but it can also be witnessing... Um, harm done to others by by others, right? So uh, witnessing the deaths of, of children, for example, in an attack that meets the legal requirements, that was not indiscriminate, that was justifiable, um, and even in terms of just war thinking might have been a justifiable attack, but in which uh, civilians and children were killed unintentionally. And the realization that that happens, it can be, for some individuals, deeply, deeply morally traumatic.
Proportionality is not easy. No. When you take all those considerations into factor. No. Um, you know, even when we're thinking about what's now called hybrid warfare, so things that involve you know disinformation campaigns or cyber warfare, those things also have impacts on society, on our human relations with each other, potentially even on, on infrastructure. And those are costs that have to be included as well. That uh, a criticism of just war thinking that pacifists often make um, is to say, you know, with this proportionality category, if you took proportionality really seriously, there should be almost no wars. And I think that's a fair criticism. Mm. Those of us who think in just war terms often don't give a full and complete accounting of the costs of war. Um, and don't and don't think that through quite as fully as we as we might. Is one of the principles of just war that your goal is to reestablish peace or restore order? Mm-hmm. So the ultimate goal, you know, regardless of whether you're fighting in self-defense or whether you're fighting to right a wrong, should be the reestablishment of of a right order. Mm. Um, according and, to who? You know, that like, would is be, it according to other? Right. Well, that's where things get really interesting. Another principle, and it's kind of tied to proportionality, is the idea of a reasonable likelihood of success. So uh, some scholars even say this is just a kind of proportionality. But the idea is, is that if the war that you are intending to fight is not one that you have a reasonable likelihood of winning then all of the harm and destruction that will happen during the war would be to no end. It would all be wasted. Uh, and therefore, you, you shouldn't go to war at all. So there's one set of questions about when we go to war. There's another set of questions about how we fight once we're in a war. And in light of how we fight, there are um, one of the most important principles is discrimination. So the idea that the force you use should be discriminate, it should be targeted at those who are somehow liable to have force used against them. So today there's some debates about what it means to be liable. In the historical traditions, it was all the soldiers fighting on the other side were were liable because they were there. And this is very much the idea that that exists now in international law. Sometimes it's referred to in Waltzerian terms. We were talking about Michael Waltzer earlier Mm -hmm. uh, as the moral equality of combatants, the idea that combatants are targetable amongst philosophers. Now there's a new tradition uh, of just war thinking, which is sometimes referred to as revisionism. And the revisionist point of view asks us to think about, you know, even down to the level of an individual soldier who is really liable, right, to have force used against them, who's really responsible. Conscripts, maybe not, right? People who volunteered, maybe yes. But there is this idea in general, right, of discriminate force. So civilians should never be deliberately targeted. Uh, Civilian infrastructure should never be deliberately targeted. The word deliberately is doing a lot of work here. In the just war tradition, the ideas about how to fight justly really are not elucidated until the 16th or 17th century. They come about much later in the tradition, and they form the basis of modern international law. Mm. 
And one of the things that these early, well, 16th century just war thinkers like Francisco de Vitoria, who is a, a Spanish scholastic, realized was it's all well and good to say you won't target civilians. Mm -hmm. But if you're using artillery on a city where civilians live, if you're aiming at a military structure, you may still kill civilians. And, you know, particularly with the kind of artillery they had at the time, that was you know, a very obvious problem. And so he invoked a principle called double effect, mm -hmm. which is the idea that you're morally responsible for what you intended to do and not for the side effects of that action, even if those side effects are predictable. So this allows for what we in modern parlance sometimes describe as collateral damage. Right. But we have to think about whether we have uh, exercised due care to avoid those civilian deaths. So thinking about how an attack at a different time of day might reduce the number of civilians being there, how using a precision guided munition might help, how the size of the munition that we use might help to protect civilians, whether it's possible to warn civilians, right, uh, that they should leave the area. And we also have to think about proportionality in this context. So if one knows that civilians will be killed or injured in an attack, is that target so important that those deaths can somehow be weighed as proportionate? I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, my guest, Dr. Valerie Morkavich, is a political scientist at Colgate University. Her research shows that many traditions and belief systems offer a code for governing conflict. Her 2017 book, Realist Ethics, takes a closer look at the principles in Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and various sects of Christianity. We now take a closer look at what this comparative view tells us. How do these traditions interact with one another? And what can we learn from them? Let's get back to the conversation. When you talked about St. Augustine and the origins of just war theory, it's really in the context, and you were talking about in the context of uh, Catholicism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about mm -hmm. in Protestant Christianity? Is there a just war mm -hmm. theory that's emerged in Protestant Christianity? There is. Um, so, and how and how is it different? There are Protestant versions of just war thinking. The earliest uh, sort of divisions come from you know the Calvinist and Lutheran splits from Catholicism. So Calvin and Luther both have things to say about just war. The differences in general, I would say, are very minor because Luther in particular makes very few innovations in terms of thinking about uh, just war thinking. He's drawing very heavily on the Catholic tradition that came before him. And uh, I think for Calvin, the difference is, is somewhat larger because Calvin is imagining something like a theocracy as an ideal of government. Mm. which was not the ideal that the Catholic Church or early Lutheranism imagined, where they thought of religious power and governmental power as being two distinct 
things that should work perhaps in coordination sometimes, but they didn't imagine those two powers as being seated potentially in the same individual. They really saw religion as a check on political power. For Calvin, that's less true. So he uh, imagines not a radically different way of thinking about just war, but in thinking about what righting wrongs might look like, Calvin's work suggests that righting wrongs could involve righting theological wrongs. Mm. And that's something which the just war tradition within Catholicism or you know, within Lutheranism would have definitely balked at, uh, which is interesting because probably right now many listeners' minds are going to thinking about the Crusades. Right. I was just about um, to say, uh, can we just put that in context with yeah, how do you how do you right? how does that square up with <laughs> the the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe? Right. right. So, just war thinkers would say that even within Catholicism, there are different ways of thinking about war. So just war thinking is one of the ways. There is also a tradition of Catholic pacifism, right? And Protestant pacifism for for that matter. There's also a tradition of crusading uh, or holy war. And just war thinkers have distanced themselves from that. So even Aquinas in the 13th century uh, makes it clear that religious difference cannot be a justification for going to war, right? Luther makes that, that same argument. Um, Calvin will say you can't use war to convert people. In this, he's absolutely following the Catholic tradition that came before him. But, right, a misordered society, because it's structured along uh, the wrong lines, uh, theologically speaking, could warrant an intervention. So not to convert people, but to cause them to live differently. Interestingly, there's some overlap there, I think, with how the just war is conceived within the Islamic traditions. So there's absolutely a just war tradition in both Sunni and Shia Islam. It also contains these same ideas about proportionality, about um, last resorts, framed in different ways, using different language, but those principles are absolutely there. The Inbello principles we talked about, about uh, discrimination and not targeting civilians directly, and uh, and if civilians are to be in the area where harm is, is happening, where violence is being used, that violence needs to be proportionate, those things are all integral to the tradition. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I recall destruction of, yes. of agriculture that would cause as you you know longer term pain and suffering absolutely yeah so it's forbidden uh, in islam to target date groves so uh you know to target agriculture right to cause environmental harm by destroying water sources is also forbidden uh interestingly uh that principle about about not cutting down uh, date groves is also found in the Jewish tradition. And in Judaism, many of these principles can also be found. Amongst the three Abrahamic uh, traditions, there is a great deal of overlap. The biggest differences emerge in this tricky category of righting wrongs. And so on balance, I think there's more in common than there is uh, it, not in common. In Hinduism, which is another tradition that I look at, we can find elements of 
these just war principles embedded in things like uh, the Mahabharata, uh, this uh, amazing religious epic also contains these principles. I think there's a lot of religious overlap between traditions, which I think is one of the reasons why these principles have become part of customary international law, but also part of, of black letter international law, the Geneva Conventions and so on. Some things that I think are really important uh, for young people to think about are, first of all, where they fall in terms of whether they think that the use of force can ever be justifiable. Because I think it's really important for individuals to be very clear in their own minds about whether they think force is ever justifiable or whether they think it never can be. And if they think it can never be justifiable, what they think are um, the appropriate means for addressing injustice. So if you have a commitment to pacifism, in order to be a person who cares about justice in the world, you have to think, I think, very carefully about how you will pursue justice through nonviolent means. It's it's not enough to just say war is bad. Um, I, I think that pacifists who care about justice owe themselves more than that. For people who think that force could be justifiable, I think that uh, they owe themselves a serious sort of sit down and think about what the limits of force are in terms of accomplishing justice, right? In the war in Ukraine, uh, as a just war thinker, I think one of the things that war can do, that the use of force can do, is to repel an unjust invasion. It can push out unjust occupiers. I think that's something that force does well. Something I think force does much less well is uh, build democracy, build a more justly ordered society, uh, create the conditions for long-term restorative justice. I also think it's really fundamentally important for us as citizens of a democracy to be aware of what is done or is not done in our name. This is a case where international law is quite clear that aggression is a crime uh, it's illegal, uh, and so self-defense is the, the only uh, use for war that is specifically listed as permissible for member states of the United Nations without prior approval of the UN Security Council. So the whole structure of international order that we live in is really based around the idea that states have sovereignty and they have the right to live without having their borders threatened by their neighbors or by anyone else. Um, so I think the importance of this conflict for drawing lines about when and how international boundaries can be violated, the geopolitical and legal implications of that are so intense, it's hard for me to parse the role that, that ethics or morality is playing here. Mm. Because if this is a moment where those things are kind of hand in hand, which is not always the case. No one is perfect. No state, no polity, no political community is perfect. So moral perfection is not a requirement of the right to self-defense 
or of our obligation right, to, to help others. At the same time, and, and sort of speaking more broadly, right, as someone who thinks about ethics, not, not necessarily from within the just war tradition, I think it's right and important for us to call out even our friends and our partners and our own states for their failures to act justly. It's important for us to call attention for uh, violations of human rights that happen, you know, even, um, you know, carried out, you know, by our partners and allies, not not only looking at those who we might see as opponents. But I also think it's important to um, to separate our desire to encourage ourselves to build a more perfect political community and others to from thinking about sort of the crime of aggression. And somehow we need to have the headspace to be able to think about both. Real ethics is messy and it's nuanced. And it's too easy, I think, sometimes to say, well, you know, both sides have problems or, and, and, and so on. Um, I think it's important to, to, to find that nuanced space where we can critique uh, even the side that we think needs the defense without that critique somehow being used to deny their need for defense and their right for defense. Valerie Morikavich is an assistant professor of political science at Colgate University. She's the author of Realist Ethics, published by Oxford University Press. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about Just War, head over to this episode's page on our website, interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>